Welcome to the Shockwave Therapy Podcast. My name is James Woolwich, Osteopath and Clinical Director at the Abbeyfields Clinic in Suffolk. We will be trying to demystify the concept of shockwave treatment whilst bringing together experts in their field to discuss the latest research. If you are deciding on whether to add this modality into your clinic or just improve the way you deliver it, then we hope this is the podcast for you. Welcome to episode three. We're joined today by Andrew Davidson, a senior physiotherapist at the Homerton Hospital in London. He is involved in research, education, as far as complex pain conditions are concerned, and persistent tendinopathies. With his role in the NHS, it would be really interesting today to pick his brains as to uh, how he sees shockwave fitting in uh, into a clinic environment where they have multiple choices of treatment and where he is going to be able to hopefully shed some light on the choices uh, that are involved in deciding whether shockwave should be used or not, and also in a, in a broader framework of a biopsychosocial model. Uh, his particular interests are in dealing with those aspects as well, and I know that he's got a great interest in sleep and the science of sleep. So it'll be a slightly broader topic today, um, but hopefully there'll be some really good information coming out of this. So welcome, Andrew. Thanks for joining us today. Um, Thank we, you so much. We're going to make this as 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 simple today i think as we as we can because the previous two podcasts were uh challenging in detail which i think some people like but i really wanted to uh look at today at being something about your experiences in an nhs setting where you have the advantage i think of using a lot more tech than we do in private practice but also because you've got a number of choices of treatment at your disposal it's really about trying to um trying to get you to sort of uh get some sort of information across to us about what the decisions are about when to use it and in what what population groups and so forth um so so can you start us off on that about your your role just give us a quick summary of your role in the nhs that is at Homerton hospital will you and see and, and how you use shockwave absolutely yeah um so i work as a senior physio in uh, the Homerton, and i've pretty much always been there since i qualified back in 2011. Uh, within the first year of me being there, uh, my consultant uh, physio at the time uh, had a colleague who'd been using, it was a podiatry colleague, had been using radio shockwave for plantar fasciitis. Um, and back then it was not particularly popular as far as we were aware. There were maybe a few NHS services in the country that had access to the machine, but it was a very murky muddy way it was not really funded um it wasn't really paid for it wasn't really used very well so um we put a business case together for the hospital uh justified it based on the research that was available um that we'd be able to make back the money and it would all be excellent and nothing to worry about we'll run it simply so we got the first machine we had uh, i think half an hour of training from the manufacturer on how to use it uh, and it was just basically figure it out see what you can do um so i think the first uh, the first little chunk of time was a little bit of uh, trial and error but when it comes to shockwave the error is uh, very low risk so we didn't actually do any harm but it took us a while to figure out how to optimize the the location the setting the pathways uh, and i think now we've got a really nice structure going and it's yielding fantastic results um and i can talk a little bit about what kind of pathway was set up uh, to date if you want well that'd be great about yes so so what what the, the groups that that get uh, triaged through to you what kind of groups are they in and how long have they had the problems for yeah so what what i do like is um as we're based in hackney um 
Actually, it is a, a quite a tricky demographic we, we work with. We the second most deprived local authority in the UK, even despite the Olympics and all the money that sort of flushed through. Um, about twenty seven percent of the population, which is two hundred and seventy thousand people, um, are struggling and suffering with chronic pain or persistent pain. Um, and as a result, we have a really, really good pain service that's been designed. Uh, and I used to work there for a few years before I moved over into the sort of more sports setting that I'm in now. But what we found is that we could find a, a role for the machine within a persistent pain population in order to basically try and reduce the need for further invasive treatments, including injections, medications, or surgeries. Right. Um, but at the same time, because it is a simple device and it has uh, a couple of really nice evidence-based effects that we are happy to say that we can we can definitely do with with good confidence and then maybe a couple of secondary effects as i call them that maybe not as research-based but at the same time are sort of handy side effects um that will work in a more sporting population as well so we don't really triage we triage everyone sorry down the same pathway yeah. and try to, to to make the treatments they get as they go along as bespoke as possible. Um, but ultimately, when it comes to shockwave, we, we get everything from the chronic 20-year histories of uh, usually plantar fasciitis, to be honest, it is one of the bigger ones. Yeah. But um, you will get your gluteal tendinopathies, your rotator cuff dysfunctions, and your tennis elbows. Um, just as often in that persistent population. Uh, and then with the sporting one, we have a little bit of a higher level ones we work with. Sometimes they are um, Achilles tendons and semi-professional football players is quite a big one as well sure. as basketball uh, players with their patella tendinopathies. Um, a couple of insertional hamstrings, um, proximal hamstrings, which have been really interesting. Yeah, uh, how, how, on that, well, that's an interesting note. If we can just pick up on that, because that yeah, what, how, how's your success rate with the, 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 the high hamstrings? So uh, I probably don't have a particularly large sample size right now. I think I could confidently say about 25 or 30 or so people. And I would confidently say two-thirds of those have got back to a sporting uh, role. Right. And a third of them are so-called non-responders. And you, um, you, use, you use radial only, or have you got some focus there as well? So this, this is a, an interesting point when it comes to private and the NHS, because you're absolutely right. In, that in the NHS we have access to some nice kit but that's mainly related to imaging um, to sort of having consultants and specialists that we can work with yeah. uh, so we have a bit more of an MDT around every patient that we treat but we have uh, uh, an absolute astronomical amount of red tape to go through before we can get anything approved in the damn NHS right, okay. uh, one of them being a focus shockwave device so I've done a lot of work uh, over the last few years to try and and uh, gently drop hints and influence the various uh, powers that be yeah, that sure. uh, we are absolutely wasting our time by not having this device here and to be honest what it often comes down to is you need to convince the um, the consultants and the surgeons yeah uh, more so than the rehab staff because they are rehab staff are, are more often than not very keen on just using non-invasive interventions for patients they know the risks that come with more invasive treatments but yeah. the consultants they they've spent a lot of time getting where they are and, uh, and you've got to look after them they're very highly professional yeah. but at the same time they don't often know as much about these devices and and unless you get them sitting down in a room around a table for 45 minutes you're not really gonna really get the message across so we have yeah. to, we're trying to find a way that will make it Kind of sure. useful for them as well okay uh and the key way i'm doing that right now is trying to to highlight that we can there are probably a few people on their waiting list that are not going to be very good candidates for surgery 
they're not really keen on doing surgery with these people either. Yeah. Like they want people that are going to have good outcomes. So yes, we can yeah, probably of take, take the ones that are not going to respond and treat them with these machines instead. Um, and that that's so always that's, that that's always the, the the real thing that I've I've seen with Shockwave is that you know that, that if they've tried really conservative, you know, really conservative approaches first, then why wouldn't you know the question really is reverse? Why wouldn't you try Shockwave before you do something exactly. invasive? And yeah. and and you know the, the evidence you know people can always pick holes in some parts of the evidence for some conditions, but when you're looking at someone that's tried everything else, what else are what else are their options? And there, there just aren't any for a chronic tendinopathy really, apart from exactly. you know someone injecting it if they're brave, or debriding it or some other such thing, which the evidence is pretty poor. So, I'm all, I always feel like I'm on sure ground by answering that in the same way every time, saying, well, why wouldn't you want to do that before you try anything yeah. else? I'd agree with that, um, and I think uh, at the same time with uh, something like as, as, uh, if we take a radial one on its own, the radial device, well, yeah. we know the side effects and risks are so low, yes. having done uh, a couple of pieces of research myself and been fortunate enough to publish one piece of material, that took two years from start to finish to get through. Um, I took me over seven months to get both local and uh, national um, ethics approval for the study. Um, it took me uh, another sort of eight to ten months to, to get the patients treated yeah. and then we followed them up for a year uh, after their uh, treatment because we wanted a longer term follow-up. Mm. That was one of the critiques of the literature at the time that all the follow-ups were two to three months ahead and it was good for pain but we wanted to see return to sport. You know, We wanted to see sure. how did they stack up versus conservative management a year later. Um, and when I finally submitted it and I'd written it and I put all my time and effort, all un most of it unpaid labor, I got a little bit of funding from the, uh, the local R&D department, but that was mainly just to deliver the treatment uh, in a yeah, clinic yeah. after hours. Um, they rejected it first time I submitted it and I had to spend another couple of months rewriting it and send it back in again. Uh, so I don't think we're going to see a paper for every single condition we could possibly treat this for, A, because it's so difficult to do, and B, because I think it comes down to this absolute help and desire to have a specific treatment setting for one condition with one patient. Yes. It doesn't work like that. We're having an influence on someone's pain system, someone's experience of pain. Yes, and that yes, is an yes. almost entirely subjective experience that yep. is influenced by so many factors that it's it's ridiculous to think that you have to treat someone at oh, this condition at 1.2 or 1.4 or 1.6 bars of pressure it's not going to be like that and you, you won't get any good results hmm. if you try and define a whole paper that way yeah. and anyway we have about 3,000 articles on this thing it's been researched to death I mean good lord <laughs> if you need to research something 3,000 times you're either doing all of the research wrong uh, or or it's just not working the way you think it's going to work so there's plenty of good systematic reviews to justify that it is a useful tool uh, more than half of the time for chronic tendinopathies and it can return to sport quicker and it's non-invasive and it's safe. Done. That's all we need to do. We don't do that with injections. You give me five papers on injection therapy. Please, <laughs> I'll wait. Like, right, hey, hey, I I, off, off, off the soapbox. Um, so so I, I, I know that you and I have had chats about this before and actually, and I've tried to tackle it with the, the previous two podcasts about the fact that people have, have begun to see this as, as they do with new devices as the, the be all and, and, and wonderful panacea you know you plug it in you press on the sore spot and and, and you you have to do no, no more else but you, you and i have had discussions about you know the fact that as a part of a, a biopsychosocial management of that patient because as we know pain is way more complex than just you know a a nerve fiber that we no longer call a pain fiber traveling up to the brain so i'm in pain yeah you know exactly. i i you know when when i see patients in the clinic you know they often share a graded loading program and 
we give them advice on sleep and in and, and reassuring them managing to remove their threat away from the fact that tendons are going to rupture so I'm assuming, you know, you, you speaking the same language. Can you just emphasize your thoughts on the fact that we shouldn't be seeing it as a one a one hit wonder for everyone's problems? Absolutely. Uh, you, you've hit it on the nail there, in particular with the, with the, the, the sleep element, which I know I have on about a lot, but uh, I really cannot hammer home how important sleep really is to recovery. And I can't believe it's not really, even in the NHS, considered a particularly important uh, yeah. focus. With the... Uh, with the, the, the pain aspect and the biopsychosocial aspect of this, I think um, oftentimes it comes down to or the reluctance to adopt these models simply come down to a little bit of fear and worry and anxiety from the practitioners who don't feel they have the competency to take that approach. Uh, they don't feel comfortable talking about someone's mental health. They don't feel comfortable talking about how they're doing at home. What's their financial situation like? You know, uh, yeah. uh, are you are you self-employed and you can't work because of this tendon? Well, if you're walking around with an incredible amount of financial stress, this graded loading program is probably not going to be sufficient, or Shockwave on its own is not really going to tackle that. So. I'm not here to fix your financial worries. I'm not here to fix your sleep, but I'm here to provide education, advice, and reassurance. Um, if you understand something, there was a great little paper. Um, I just have a copy of it here on expectations and persistent pain being one of the biggest predictors for uh, recovery. Um, if you have a um, so if you if you have an expectation that you're not going to be better, which is largely what the start back tool for low back pain was about, yeah, sure it was. Yeah, you're going to back better. You can kind of throw everything you want at them. There's a good chance they're not going to get better. Yes. Um, and the uh, the um, the the stress I think comes down to the the time limitation we sometimes have in the NHS for a large group of these patients are seen. Um, but at the same time, when you're in the private, then you don't necessarily have the, the, the teaching, the in-service training, and then the team alongside you to have these discussions and debates with. Yeah. So ultimately, I think the, the best way forward is probably a combination between the two approaches we could take. The freedom in the private market to kind of explore and use devices that have lots and plenty of evidence without having to troll through red tape to get it through. Yeah, absolutely. And the clinical support you get through the NHS. Yeah. Um, so I would insist when someone comes through with a persistent tendinopathy um i don't view it as a tendon problem initially we we uh, we, we do a, a thorough and a, and a proper biomechanical assessment of the function of their tissues and their capacity so i love yeah. this uh, loads capacity model of what are you doing right now and what are you capable of doing so i need to know what they're doing during the day not just what their sporting aspirations are i want to run 10k and i can't do that right now well that's that's not that interesting to me uh, yeah what you what you what you can't do so how how long does it take you to commute to work and are you sitting down or standing up when you do so and how long do you stand or sit for when you're at work and how many hours is that and then when you come home do you sit down all day and then do you sleep for eight hours so basically we have 18 to 20 hours of inactivity during the day well that could be the first thing that we try and do in terms of increasing loads it doesn't even have to be exercise or it yeah. could be the opposite of reducing that load um so it, it, it takes time to develop these skills yeah. but the research and the training and the tools they're all out there i think it's just that people are a bit worried that we're going to lose that kind of quintessential skill set we were given in university yeah which i without being too harsh to these people i think it comes down to a bit of an ego trip where you uh you want to feel like you're the person who has your hands something in your body in your hands to fix someone you know it's like yeah a, i, I think and i think of a power thing and i think that actually you know there, there, there is an element of threat you know professional threat that you know surely i've got the skills surely it is this tendon i can rub or whatever else 
But actually, I think yeah. people often, when you speak to them about you know what 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 dealing with it in a, in a BPS sort of framework, it, it is not that complicated. And actually, most practitioners are doing those things where they're they're listening, um, they're caring, they're reassuring, and, and and they just need to accept that they they're, they're almost there with what they're doing anyway. It's just making Absolutely. sure that in their on, on, on reflecting on how they manage the patient it's, it's a knowledge that actually probably at least half of, of that, that patient's benefit has come about through your reassurance listening caring rather than just the magic you know shockwave machine which we're going to go off tack here too much but I think going back to what, what you said a minute ago about about um, uh, you know the, I think some elements of the reassurance about expectations I, I listen quite a lot to Lauren Mosley and he talks about this idea of threat and I think when I, I see a lot of runners here with Achilles problems, and if you sort of simply state to the, that, that patient that they, they can still run as long as it's, with it's within a certain amount of pain, and I like Tom Goom's work on this, where he's done some nice infographics about uh, it's okay to sump, you know, to five out of 10 pain and so forth. And you, you give them that confidence that they're not also going to likely rupture that tendon. So the data yeah. doesn't suggest if you've got a tendinopathy, you're more likely to rupture. And you can see the weight just lifting from the shoulders that they know they can go for a run, it can hurt a bit, and it's okay. And yeah. that, that's probably more powerful for that, that two minutes of conversation than, than, than the best shockwave machine that exists. But, you know, it, 100%, it, yeah. it's putting it all together to say, you know, look, actually after three sessions of shockwave, you've had all this information, you're reassured, you're happy running again, and, and you felt 75% better. I'm, I'm quite happy that out of that 75%, 38.5 or whatever it is is coming from my reassurance. I don't need it to come from my machine necessarily, but the two together work well. Exactly. I, I like, and I, I like to draw this stuff to patients, but because I, I do, I do preach a little bit to patients and I, I've, I've caught myself recently trying to, to not be so, I think they call it a didactic approach where yes. you're just telling and telling and telling. So yeah. uh, I, I, I fall I, into that category sometimes. Well, it, I think it's it's benign because it comes from a certain level of passion and enthusiasm for what yeah. we're talking about, and therefore it can be quite tempting just to be like, "Look, I've got all this great information; you should have it." Mm. But at the same time, there are certain things that it's just information and knowledge that they should have, and you can turn it into a discussion. But I'll draw and I'll write this stuff down, and I'll put them into like a pain tree, for example, where I'll put pain in the middle, and mm. I'll start drawing a line over to how that can influence certain parts of your day, mm. and that could be your sleep, which then affects your your immune capacity and your nervous system health which then can increase your pain further so you've got one loop and then you just keep creating these loops about sure. conditioning and mental health and social life and then they start to see for themselves how complicated this picture actually is and I say we can't just take away the bit in the middle just go take painkillers if you want to do that like, that won't influence any of these other factors mm. so I'll, I'll draw a little shockwave machine and I'll show the different bits of that tree that that can influence and then I'll put some exercise next to it and, and show how that can influence other bits and then I'll put mental health and then we start to see that they they start to get on board with how mm. is uh, my my mindfulness or my positivity going to influence this but how is shockwave going to play in and then they don't end up putting all of their eggs into the one basket of shockwave because I think the biggest thing we struggle with for shockwave in particular is that it can have a really powerful analgesic or pain relieving effect in a very short term and yeah. if you have been struggling with pain for a long time mm. that is an absolute godsend that is so amazing mm. so when that effect naturally wears off because it is a transient effect three days later you associate the return of pain with the return of trauma or damage or harm mm. and if that isn't explained beforehand then you will you will end up treating them with this forever they, they will not ultimately achieve the goal they're looking for in the long term yeah. and that's one thing I've explored now with uh, I'm treating a group of uh, footballers with a Ductor tendinopathy. We're, we're trying to do a little mini mini study on that, groin strains and osteitis pubis. And I can really see the difference now 
we're trying to find out with predictive markers for what is what was the markers that were more likely to suggest that someone got better or not and they were all related to their their belief and expectation plus adherence to training while they were undergoing the shockwave so sure. those that really thought and hoped that it would take their pain away and fix them are just not the ones that are getting better um, that's that's interesting specifically specifically in that subgroup that that is interesting isn't it but that but that, yeah, again, I, it probably sports, it probably comes it, back to that idea that Laura Mosley talks about is that level of threat that if you if you have a particular condition that is threatening your you know potential career or the, the thing that you enjoy most then then he he will say there's good evidence to say that uh, that affects le- level of pain and it also it also affects the chronicity or the potential to become chronic with that condition 100% if you look at uh, rupture rates in tendinopathy those that are more likely to rupture a tendon do not have pain uh, preceding that rupture so yes. pain is not the thing that's associated with rupture and that's the first thing I'll tell in particular the Achilles uh, ones who yes. um, uh, also the ones who have already had a ruptured Achilles we are treating a very large group of Achilles ruptures conservatively now um, anyone who's basically over 35 to be honest not to be too harsh on when you're a little bit older but they, they have mortgages and houses and work and there are, they, they need to do around 200 minutes of rehab a week if they're going to have this surgically managed mm. and their re-rupture rates are a little bit higher with, with the risk of, the re-rupture rates are probably the same but there was a higher comp, uh, risk of other complications once you've had surgery right. um, so uh, we give them this data to show them that you've made the right choice by going conservative but you, you can decide but you need to own the decision that you make at the end of it you have to make it your decision and not feel like this was something you almost influenced or forced to do and once you're at that sort of headspace with your rehab at the end of it the biggest predictor for whether or not they return to sport was a psychological fear of re-injury and not the actual health or strength of the tendon itself and yeah. it's the same with acl injuries as well that's the biggest predictor right so okay we, uh, yeah I think what what's interesting, we have an incredibly good ACL uh, rehabilitation platform at our hospital for surgical patients. We follow them up for almost a full year, from nine months to a year with weekly and then bi-weekly sessions, and we don't have the same thing for the conservatively managed ones. Um, so again, linking all of this back to Shockwave, we know we can have some incredibly powerful effects on a cellular level with the different settings we use with our Shockwave machine. But the key factor for every single element of that is the graded loading program. Yes. But we don't always have as much of a either a confidence or a competency when it comes to return to sports or higher level populations. We kind of drop off a little bit, I think, with the higher level stuff. And that is then a, a more of a biomechanical understanding as well. So I think what people fear a little bit when it comes to the biopsychosocial model is that we don't care about loading. We don't yes. care about yeah. strength and conditioning. Like we don't care about biomechanics. Like Of course we do. Absolutely. But of course, the, ir- the irony is that is why it's called the biopsychosocial people yeah. <laughs> people forget that that with that at its very heart that is what it's always about and uh you know it seems to get lost there but let, let's try and bring it back there one of the first things i was thinking about in terms of questions was um i know when you first started helping me uh with my journey into shockwave you were talking about some of the results of um of the scanning that you were doing the ultrasound scanning high level stuff and that um you know people always you know there's always going to be people to say you know does it really change tendons what happens in the tendons and this and the other can you can you give us a bit of feedback on some of the things that you've that you've seen on uh, the the scanning side of things in terms of use of shockwave? Yeah, so with uh, I think there's there's 
probably two factors that I find interesting when it comes to imaging, and I always stress that it is not uh, essential. I do not think it is. it has to be an absolutely essential defined part of this pathway. I think we're just lucky that we have a lot of people who have sonography as a, a bit of a special interest field in my clinic, but I would not really be crying if I didn't have that. Mm. Um, ultimately, the, the one thing I, uh, I'm interested in is the field, this neovascularity sort of topic. Um, the growth of neovessels inside of a tendon is this really associated with a, a lower risk of return to sport or a higher risk of chronicity. Mm. Um, the the best description I had of it was actually a colleague of mine who's a he is a physio, he's an anatomist, so he does dissections at St George's University. He's a bit of a morbid guy, <laughs> but he, uh, <laughs> he he managed to. I don't know how he did that because he wasn't really qualified to do so. But he blagged his way into St George's. <laughs> I mean, he, uh, he he's a lot. Let's hope he listens to this. Uh, he, he, I'm sure he will. He, yeah, get the scalpel out, and then he'll be told, "I need four ankles done by, you know, by Monday." And he just spend his weekend, you know, slicing, dicing these tendons. So, <laughs> incredibly detailed understanding of the anatomy and biomechanics. And if, he'll talk of a, a tendon as this really tight, uh, compressive structure that's under a lot of load. Think of the Achilles, for example, constantly under a huge amount of spring and tension. And as it elongates, it compresses, it tightens, and it squishes everything that's inside of it. So on a very, very basic level, where we have the presence of a neovessel or vascularity, there is also a sensory presence. Um, it is not supposed to be there from an anatomical point of view. It doesn't seem to do anything. And as you squish it and squeeze it, you have a sensory response as a result of that. Yes. And wherever we have senses or sensory responses, they can become hypersensitized. So I think more of an association, you could say, where there is a presence of neovessels that could be associated with an increasing risk of hypersensitivity. So that uncomfortable setting. Yes. Uh, and then on the side of that, we have seen... Uh, that the shockwave in the short term was powerful enough at a, at a higher level to to break down, um, uh, for lack of a better word, break down the presence of these vessels when we rescanned them uh, directly after a session that we'd done. Um, so we we had to try and control for a few factors when we had, you know, if you, if you get someone to run for one or two minutes, you you will increase the the, the sort of visual effect of a vascularity on the scan. So we had to make sure everyone had kind of been still and not done anything. Was this using minutes. was this just using really good uh, ultrasonography? Or were you using a UTC or whatever it's called? Yeah, no. So I I would love to get my hands on a UTC machine. I you know would. there's one there's one in London. Um, right. And there's a colleague of mine who has it in his clinic. Uh, to be honest, I don't think he uses it very much, but he uh, he does have one, and and that would be some pretty interesting stuff. But it, it's it's not the most practical machine you'd have to do it a little bit more like an MRI when you right. them in and they go in for a full day yeah. so it takes away a little bit of the sort of usability of, of an ultrasound but yeah we use we have some really nice ultrasound machines I will say that they were donated to the hospital after the Olympics um, and uh, it's 150 grand incredibly sort of clear and fancy beautiful images yeah and we saw um, so you nice saw those pictures. those definitive changes happen straight after yeah, shockwave absolutely. so it is definitely creating a, a mechanical change in the tissues is what is what i'm looking yeah. for there yeah uh, uh the uh and that's where my how i've sort of delivered my teaching of shockwave has changed a little bit over the years of, of uh one, one thing i've adapted over the last couple of years is this idea that if i think about it as having three categories of changes um it uh, that fits roughly how the settings of the machine work and it's easier to kind of picture it in your head right with the 
um, I call it the, the, the pain relieving or the analgesic effects being the first category where there is a low bar of pressure, or low power and a high frequency yeah. um, that does not penetrate very deeply. It mainly sits around the surface of the tendon area. Um, it has mainly an effect on the, on the nervous system, potentially using a pain gate theory based approach to, to uh, hyperstimulation, anesthesia or some pain relief from there. So if that's all someone can handle, you can feel justified in just doing a low dose treatment for the first session, yes. knowing that whilst you might not induce a lot of cellular changes to the tendon, you have likely uh, changed their perception and experience of pain alongside all that other biopsychosocial stuff with a bit of loading they yeah. come in next week and hopefully we're in a better state to then try again sure the second category i call the regenerative phase where we're arbitrarily between 1.8 to 2.5 bar it's a little bit hard to put exact numbers on them but um we we are now penetrating a little bit deeper the the frequency is around 10 um we are an, uh, deep enough now to hit the, the tendon itself and with just enough power to start to induce some changes on the inside of that tendon, potentially uh, stimulating the growth of a couple of tenocytes, which we hope to then turn into tendon fibrils through loading. That's that pro-collagen synthesis sort of element of a tendinopathy. Yeah, lovely. Um, and then maybe uh, enough power at the 2.5 mark to start breaking down some vessels. But that really, as far as I'm aware, yeah. start to happen at a little bit of a higher dose, which is then the degenerative phase. And anything above two and a half up to you know three three and a half with uh, around eight to ten again just a decent frequency but that power is what we're looking for for like calcifications or big neovessels or you know big thick uh, harder complex tendons we sure. really want to try and break them down so so that's it's not clear black and white but that's the three sort of phases and the, the sort yeah, of fluid that's, that's how I picture them so that's, I that's, think that helps that's pretty well yeah it's pretty good that you've only got three because you know you can get into eight and 10 and start talking stem cells and other sorts of complicated things well, yeah, 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 but yeah, that, exactly. that I think that in terms of communicating to patients which is, is where probably the most clinical efficacy is is trying to get something that yeah. they can go away with in their mind is, is actually you know the most is most day-to-day -day useful isn't it I think those three ways of saying it are probably quite helpful so what yeah. what in terms of your NHS clinic um, what what guides you in terms of treatment number um in and gap between treatment and so forth let's just talk through what you do with that at the homerton yeah so uh the homerton clinic uh, as it runs at, at the moment has a uh, a little bit of uh say bureaucracy around how the clinic is run because they want a certain efficacy as well so we know you need to have at least three sessions to be effective so they have defined it as having three so everyone just comes around for a round of three right and because it's booked in blocks of three that means that it's easier for the admin staff and the booking staff to to just book people up for you know a couple of months ahead they've got these rounds of three just constantly running um and they were the I, are they with a week apart Yes, so they, for convenience, they have set them seven days apart. Right. What we've done, basically, because I've been there for enough time now, is that I, if there's anyone particularly complex or anyone on my, my case, I, I will see them personally. I won't refer them into the shockwave clinic, and that way I keep the waiting list down a little bit. Um, and I personally do four sessions. I've added an extra one towards the end. Privately, I open up to have five, but I wouldn't really offer more than five. That's a, a little bit of a personal preference, but also because I can't really justify... 
uh, from the evidence base that there's any any higher efficacy after five sessions and also there potentially is some sort of ceiling effect where we're inducing uh, harm and reliance as opposed to, to some positive effects and also we need to start properly loading this tendon at some point so yes. you don't want to just shock it forever yes. so four, <laughs> four I have defined because I know three is the bare minimum uh, and so I think having one extra just allows us for a little bit of extra input I also do a slightly higher volume um, so in the clinic, they will do about two and a half thousand to three thousand impulses. Yeah. I, I've started doing four thousand, and that is also because I spend a little bit more time at the very start of the treatment, uh, essentially getting them used to the sound and the feel of the device. Um, so I don't really count the first five hundred or thousand as having any particular. And you'd set that effect. you'd set that high frequency low bar just to get them used to it, would you? But with with everyone who comes through, I have a one point zero is the, the the number I start at. Right. I'll also I'll put it to four thousand and I'll set it around twelve, uh, maybe twelve fourteen to start with. So yeah, it comes out quite fast. But what I'll do before I start it is I, I turn the machine on and I put it in the palm of my hand yeah. while they're watching. And again, there's something about that little visual input. Like if this guy's crazy enough to put this thing on his hand, yes. it can't be that scary. Um, and then, yeah, you gently start to put that onto the skin, not directly on top of the symptomatic tissue. Sure. Um, I treat a little bit around the periphery and then work in towards the, the, the tender part afterwards. Yeah. Um, as they come through, if they can tolerate it, the second session even, they already know what to expect. So I start maybe a little bit higher next time and I don't spend so much time at the lower levels. But yeah, I, I 4,000 and at least four sessions. That's my current yeah, sort perfect. Of, uh, particular yeah. approach. I yeah. mean, when I, when I do the, some of the teaching as well, I, the one thing I noticed that, that I was sort of a bit different on and, and not, not sure why, but I mean, probably because I'm... I'm, I'm uh, well, I'm not sure why, to be honest, but I mean, I, I treat all, all my plantar fasciitis. Everything that I, I treat, I always try and make sure that I can see the patient face to face. I, I I can't remember the last time I put a patient on their front. People are always yeah. a bit bit sort of freaked by that. And so when you can you can get to every bit of tissue that you need, whilst also having a sort of eye to eye contact with the patient. I think there's there's a reassurance in the fact that they can see what's happening, and it's not they're just on their front and they've got their foot in the air and they put this foreign machine that makes a hell of a noise on their tissues. I think for all those reasons we talked about with BPS earlier, I, I, it always struck me as being obvious that you'd want to do that, but um, there's always a position you can get them agree. into. And I, I do exactly the same. That's, that's how I'm teaching at the moment too. And I think it, uh, yes, there's a reliance. I also maintain a conversation with them while we're talking. Yeah. Um, just that tiny little bit of distraction. But I'll be talking about the tendon and about the effects that we're doing, about their loading. And if there's anything in their particular um, uh, case or history that I think we need to maybe address, like uh, providing some education on sleep or whatever. But just kind of, again, it's that reassurance and it keeps it going. Um, and I also find with... Um, with a couple of ones that are just naturally a little bit anxious or uh, you can't quite get them fully relaxed or reassured, uh, I'll get them to put some headphones in, listen to some music and just kind of, you just let me do my thing, you know, Off yeah, you go, yeah. you just relax, I'll, I'll do my thing back here, you give me a shout if anything happens. And so they can see the device as well. Um, I know not everyone has a device with a, with a screen attached to it. The screen has yes. minimal clinical value, to be honest. Yes, but indeed. If yeah. you happen to have bought one with the screen, then I'll show them the screen so they can look at that. Yeah. And see the numbers go up and they can kind of see when it's about to finish. And um, So, you, you know, you use the tools you have available to you, but um, I think... Uh, the, the the two most powerful ones are comfortable position definitely uh, and in terms of how much pain they should experience during the treatment that's another huge field that we always talk about I sure, have yeah. 
good couple of people that I've done some training with who's bought the machine, they've used it for a while, and then they've asked for training because it's not quite going well. And there's this, this I don't know where this belief really came from, that you're supposed to hammer it home and kind of the, the more painful the better. There, there's a lot of people out there who are using the machine that way. Um, I think maybe it might be because there was evidence to say, you know, the higher the energy level, the, the higher the yes. treatment effects. But... And now it seems to be, just I've been reading that it seems to be coming back down from that, doesn't it? Well, which would make complete sense because to use someone's subjective pain experience as a guide for how much power you should put this machine through um, when you probably haven't addressed any of the factors in place to determine how hard or how high that pain level is going to be mm. before you start. Um, I had a guy who, who uh, I went to a BMI hospital and, and just as I came in to do the teaching into a room, I saw someone came limping out of a room and a, sort of, uh, a consultant who squeamishly quickly shut the door and, uh, and he treated this lady's plantar fasciitis. She was in tears. She was limping out the room. And he was, he was on five bars of pressure with this Ooh. thing, which is technically intended for horses, if I'm not entirely mistaken. <laughs> like, it's, not, it's not really meant for uh, uh, mammals. <laughs> it's it's kind of meant to be rammed home with uh, with race horses, with tennis ball calcifications. But um, anyway, you, you, you get the idea. Like, if, do, yeah. if she genuinely believes that that would make her better and she walks off and, and loads it well and sleeps good, and, you know, God bless by all means you're not going to rupture anything but yeah my personal effect is it's a little bit like you said if if they if they want me to put a number on it sure it'll be around the four or five mark but i, I use words like uh, i say soft or hard pain words like if it's achy and it's sore and it's tender but it eases off we have a 24-hour load response to tendinopathy if 24 sure. hours later it gets better and goes away then you haven't done any problems if you wake up 24 hours later and it's really painful then it's unlikely to be the shockwave you probably loaded it a little bit too high in the in the period after you had the shockwave because yeah. you had a nice pain relieving effect yeah so i always i always warn patients not to get too carried away with that yeah just take it easy for 24 hours wake up tomorrow morning and tell me how you feel yeah. um and then uh, about a week later uh, and I'll, I'll do between sort of four and seven days for my follow-ups uh, i don't if i'm seeing them uh, for in my clinic i don't always have to wait seven full days i can if it's convenient for them i can see them a little bit sooner but i don't like going much longer than seven because it does seem to be some sort of drop off uh, yeah. in terms of those clinical effects yeah okay great all right well, that's, I mean, I'm looking at the list of things we sort of said we'd discuss, and that's pretty much tackled all of them, particularly the BPS and the sleep stuff. I think we could probably definitely spend more time going through another podcast in the future about um, some of the, the graded loading stuff and, and sleep, and I know that we could probably get really boring about neurogenic inflammation and hormonal effects on tendons. Oh, yeah. So why, why, why don't, why, <laughs> no, why don't no, we we'll reconvene at some point uh, after I've got another few podcasts done. But um, thanks very much for today. As always, I say this oh, to everyone. Pleasure. I know completely genuine. I always learn everything. I always learn something myself every time I talk to one of you guys about this stuff. Um, so I'm going to re, re I'm going to re-listen to this this afternoon. But uh, thanks for Bye. your time, Andrew. And uh, we'll speak again soon. My pleasure. Get in touch whenever you want. Nice Cheers. Talk. Thank you. Bye. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.